And we're back. Welcome to the second episode of the Global Inquirer, where we take a look at intriguing stories and case studies from around the world to examine how global trends are impacting real lives and international relations. I'm your host, Nico Marsage, and today I'm joined by Nicholas Mortensen, a, one of our researchers and a prospective global security and justice major. Nick, welcome. Welcome on the show. Good to be here. Thanks. And our other researcher, Balthazar Marin, a prospective foreign affairs major. Balthazar, welcome on the show. Thank you, Nick. So today we're going to take a look at the global reliance on oil, and specifically we're going to examine a case study in Venezuela and how their reliance on oil has contributed heavily to their massive food shortage. So Nick, I want to take it to you first. We've heard a lot about Venezuela in the news recently. Can you tell us a little bit more, though, about this food shortage? Yeah, so Venezuela is going through a food shortage that the U.N. has called a humanitarian crisis. And this food shortage is because of Venezuela's economic uh, downturn. Usually, Venezuela is very reliant on food imports. They don't really have the capabilities at home to feed everyone. But due to the fact that their economy is in tatters right now, um, the uh, the IMF, the National Monetary Fund, predicts that their inflation rate is going to break 1,500 or 1,700% this year alone. They just do not have the economic wherewithal to feed everyone. It's gotten so bad that 9.6 million Venezuelans are subsisting off two meals or less a day. Well, I mean, that just sounds horrible. You know, you mentioned that the government just doesn't have the wherewithal to, to counteract this downturn. But have they been trying to do anything to counteract it? The Venezuelan government has been taking some pretty large actions. Uh, President Nicolas Maduro has actually handed control of the country's food system to the military. But what, what exactly does handing the food supply to the military entail? The military now controls every aspect of Venezuela's food production and distribution. They are in, they're in charge of imports. They're in charge of distribution. They're in charge of who gets what. Essentially, if it has anything to do with food, the military is in control of it at this point. Wow. So they're pretty much in charge of anything. And, you know, Maduro, he cedes this authority to distribute food properly to the people. So the problem is solved, right? Unfortunately not. Uh, there have been reports by PRI and numerous other outlets that say that the military is engaging in racketeering at every possible turn. There are reports of corruption above, corruption below, corruption in distribution, corruption in actually getting the food into the country. There's very few legitimate be- dealings going on right now. Right. I mean, you know, it seems so clear to me that we're not just looking at corruption, but we're also looking at an outright humanitarian crisis. Um, so I want to take you to the streets of Caracas to really get an idea of the extent of this crisis. Here's Gladys Elena Carreño, a community leader in Caracas, and Maria del Pilar Bosch from a video done by Human Rights Watch in October detailing just how bad the situation really is. By family size, if there are four people in your family, you have the right to buy a bag of government-regulated food. But what's in a bag of regulated goods? One carton of milk, two boxes of pasta, three bags of flour, and one can of condensed milk for one month. We have nothing for lunch for the children today. And well, we have to survive and teach our children that there is no food today, that they should wait until tomorrow, the day after tomorrow. And it's painful because I'm old, so it doesn't matter. But these kids have just started to live their lives. Well, Nick, um, you know, it's almost tough to transition from that, but how is Venezuela so dependent on food imports? How did, how did we get to this point? 
We got to this point for a variety of reasons. Uh, Venezuela had to import much of its food because its farms were nationalized a couple of decades back and simply put, were not efficient enough to actually keep up with Venezuela's population growth and Venezuela's total population. To make up for that, Venezuela has relied on its economic exports to get the money it needs to buy food. But what kind of exports are we talking? Almost all of its export revenues come from oil. So it seems like they're completely reliant on oil. Yeah, they're more or less entirely reliant on oil. And due to price drops in 2014 and 2015, they have lost a significant portion of their export revenues, which means they simply no longer have the money to bring in the food they need to. Right, right. So, I mean, clearly the collapse of oil prices in 2014, 2015 played a major role in their economic collapse and complete humanitarian crisis. But um, let's go back in history a little bit. Has this reliance on oil had adverse effects in the past? Absolutely. And one of the biggest instances where the United States was involved was in the oil embargo in 1973. This was an instance where the price of oil in the United States quadrupled. There were massive shortages around the country. And generally, the economy of the United States was hurt a lot by decisions it was making abroad. But how did this happen? The oil embargo happened because the United States decided to back Israel in the Arab-Israeli War in 1973. And in retaliation, OPEC refused to export oil to the United States. What, what is OPEC? OPEC is the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. At this point, it is a cartel that I think is composed of 13 countries. But in 1973, it was composed of six primarily Arab Gulf states. So how did they completely drive prices to the roof? So... Prices are determined by how supply and demand interact. And during this oil embargo, the demand for oil in the United States was incredibly high. We used it in pretty much every facet of our life. Transportation, manufacturing, domestic purposes, everyone needed it. Demand was still high. Supply hit the floor. And just because of that, the prices quadrupled almost immediately. Right. And I think it's important to note, though, that even though it affected U.S. consumers incredibly, there were clear winners and losers. You know, in this case, U.S. consumers lost, obviously. But the price of oil rapidly increasing would definitely benefit these OPEC countries, right? Absolutely. And the economic benefits were a little bit misty, but this was mostly a political win for those nations of OPEC. They worked together. They issued a very strong statement to the United States, which was, you're meddling in our affairs. This is how we're going to punish you. Like, stay in your lane, stay where you are. Do not try to interfere in our, in sort of our corner of the world, our region of the world. So clearly, you know, this reliance on oil had larger political effects in, in global affairs. Now, taking us into the 1980s, Balthazar, I want to bring you in the conversation now. I want to touch on the reliance of oil and its role in the 1980s debt crisis. So can you tell me a little bit about what happened in the 1980s? Well, the 1973 oil embargo had far-reaching political and economic consequences. Uh, this is the perfect example of how a dispute between three to four countries concerning specific policy of a specific region can undermine the entire economic and political structure of our world and disproportionately affect developing nations. And at the heart of it was oil dependency, and this all took form as the debt crisis. So what is a debt crisis exactly? It's a pretty convoluted issue, so let's bring it into more familiar terms. Think of Mexico as an individual, a small business owner. Their business is operating until one day they run into unforeseen circumstances and they're forced to take out a loan from a bank. Once again, they're operating, the money from the bank is doing its job until more unforeseen circumstances occur and Mexico is forced to take out another loan. But this time, this loan is at higher interest rates and Mexico is forced to refinance 
all of its debts at this higher interest rate, boosting the overall amount of money they're going to have to one day pay back. And this cycle just continues and continues. And so basically, this is what we saw play out in the 1980s with which countries? Exactly. Um, it disproportionately affected developing nations. Uh, Latin American nations were the first to go, uh, followed by African nations and just all other developing nations. So we know that all these countries defaulted on their debts. But what was the exact role of oil in this crisis? Well, the mechanisms of the debt crisis were well in place before 1973. When oil prices skyrocketed, countries were forced to borrow even more money. Uh, when oil prices go up, you can't simply say we're not going to use oil anymore. You have to. It's an integral part of every economy, especially during the 1970s and 1980s. Um, so they were just forced to borrow more and more, which really fueled the whole debt crisis. So before we talked about these clear winners and losers, in 1973, U.S. consumers lost while OPEC countries won. It's pretty obvious to me that, you know, these developing countries like Mexico, in this case, who you had mentioned, lost. But who were the winners? Well, it's hard to say there were any winners. Uh, it was a real lose-lose situation. Mexico is losing because, well, they don't have any money, nor do they have access to borrow money to support their economy, pay their workers, import food. But the banks in the Western nations were also in a poor fiscal situation. Not only were they going to lose the initial investment they made, but they weren't going to make back any of the interest. Uh, so in both sides, they're going to lose. Now on an individual level with a small business owner, this would be fine for the bank. They'd simply be able to absorb the loss uh, and the individual would go into bankruptcy. But on such a wide global scale with millions, billions of dollars at stake, uh, a bank simply can't afford to take that loss. And um, if they were to fully default, then the bank would be put in a terrible situation. So instead, they refinanced these loans and implemented specific policies that these countries had to enact. And this was known as the global debt regime. Right. So it's clear in this case that, you know, in the 1970s and the 1980s, you know, this reliance on oil had massive political ramifications. And now bringing us back into the modern context and how the reliance of oil has still played, is still playing out to this day, really. What actually drove the drop in oil prices in 2014? Well, this mirrors the 1973 oil embargo, but in an opposite way. Rather than curbing oil production, Saudi Arabia has decided to saturate the market, driving prices to all-time lows, from $106 per barrel to $46 per barrel. But why, why would Saudi Arabia want to do that? So this was a long-term economic goal for Saudi Arabia to crowd the American oil industry out of the market. Since 2005, when oil dependency peaked in America, there have been these patriotic cries of oil independency. We want to get away from these volatile regions which produce our oil. Uh, you might remember the 2008 Republican cry of drill, baby, drill. And we really rallied behind that idea. Um, and in 2011, we actually achieved oil independency for the first time since the 1950s. Nick, I want to bring you back into the conversation. How, how did the U.S. you know, actually become oil independent? Yeah, so just some background before we get into it. The United States has very large deposits of all sorts of natural resources. Oil is a really big one in particular. The issue is that a lot of this oil is difficult to get to. Uh, you have tar sand, shale oil, or oil that is just very deeply embedded in rocks that are hard to get to. And all of these sort of deposits are difficult to get out of the ground because it's economically unfeasible. Uh, previously, up until recently, they were very expensive to get to. And just the price of oil, you weren't going to get much of a return out of that. 
What has changed recently and what brought us towards energy independence was the advent of fracking. Fracking is a new drilling method that essentially involves uh, a company sticking a pipe where an oil deposit is and then feeding in a very powerful stream of water, sand, and other chemicals. And what this basically does is blast the rock open, blast whatever needs to be blasted open, and you can drill out the oil from there. And this method has been revolutionary for the United States. It has opened up a lot of oil deposits that we wouldn't have otherwise been able to access and has brought us closer to that energy independence, which we have just attained recently. So the U.S. finds these incredible oil deposits Mm -hmm. in fracking and... There, in turn, Saudi Arabia decides to saturate the market, which completely drives oil prices down. Absolutely. And they did this because fracking extraction methods are still more expensive than traditional fracking expenses. So as Balthazar said, their plan was to drive the U.S. out of the market because these were young, small companies that might not have been able to operate at loss for that long. Luckily for the United States, they actually managed to come out the other side. It looks like most fracking operations have really stabilized and are here to stay. Right. But now, Balthazar, what were the actual political implications of this drop in oil prices, not just at a domestic level in a country like Venezuela, but at, a, at an international level? Just like in 1973 with Mexico and Latin American countries, there have been many adverse effects, uh, many unforeseen circumstances that have occurred, uh, mainly with Russia and the European Union. Russia is a country which relies heavily on its oil and natural gas exports. It is the world's largest reserve of natural gases and supplies 100% of Estonia, Latvia, uh, Lithuania's oil, 40% of Germany's oil, 30% of France's oil. So it really can't be understated how big of a factor oil is to the Russian economy. And in 2014... Well, in 2014, when oil prices dropped to all-time lows, it had a detrimental effect on the Russian economy. The Russian ruble, which perfectly mirrors the value of oil prices, also dropped by nearly 50% and left the Russian economy in shambles. So let's bring this back to the political implications. Now, how did this actually affect, you know, Russian diplomacy or Russian EU diplomacy? The drop in oil prices had a huge effect on Russia's position during talks and negotiations with the United States and the European Union regarding their involvement in the Crimea and Ukraine. As a huge supplier of oil to the rest of Europe, uh, they were now put in a precarious position. Oil was extremely cheap. These countries had other sources of oil uh, that they might not have had access to when oil was $106 per barrel. So it really took away a major bargaining chip for Russia. Wow, it sounds like, you know, in the 1970s, Saudi Arabia took this huge bargaining chip, and now in 2000s, Russia lost this huge bargaining chip as a result of this complete reliance on oil. But now moving into the future a little bit, let's, let's go into this crystal ball. So I want to talk about how, you know, the reliance of oil will change over time into the future. It seems clear to me that after 194 countries signed the Paris Climate Agreement to limit greenhouse gas emissions... And there have been fairly like large grassroots movements to move away from oil and into more sustainable energy. But are we actually moving towards a future and towards a world less reliant on oil, Nick? Absolutely not. The way things are looking, both from a political and technology perspective, at least for the next couple of decades, you know, 30, 40, maybe even 50 years, oil is here to stay. Wow. How so? Like, it just seems so crazy to me. So, the, you have to start with the alternatives. 
every green energy alternative has some rather massive crippling flaws that makes it unpractical to actually uh, bring into the mainstream. Solar usually isn't efficient enough to actually be profitable. As a matter of fact, like even the highest efficiency solar panels take decades, if not longer, to actually pay themselves back. Wind energy also has the same issue with energy density. It simply does not produce enough energy to be useful. And from an environmental perspective, those wind turbines actually massacre bird populations. A lot of areas around the world uh, that have these wind turbines have reported a large sort of uptick in bird deaths. They fly into the blades and usually die. But don't we still have nuclear then? Isn't that like a great option for us? Nuclear is the best option, but there's still several flaws with it. And granted, a lot of these flaws have to do with perception. Everyone wants to look back to Fukushima or Chernobyl. But just from a logistical perspective, to actually replace our energy production entirely with nuclear, we would need to commission hundreds of nuclear reactors every year for a very long time. And that brings up a lot of economic and security issues as well. Thanks, Nick. Uh, that, was, that was a pretty grim analysis there. But, you know... You're telling me that when I see all these green commercials from ExxonMobil and BP with their environmental scientists, is that all? You're telling me that's all a complete farce? Unfortunately, like my friend here, I'm going to have to take a pretty pessimistic view. Uh, These PR campaigns, we've seen them time and time again. We saw them in 1989 with the Valdez oil spill from ExxonMobil. We saw it in 2010 from the BP spill. Anytime there's a major disaster, the American public is starting to look uh, unfavorably upon the oil industry. They come out with these green commercials, all this uh, whoop-de-doo, and, you know, and it really amounts to nothing. The political control that these c- huge companies have over our system is uh, its really quite scary. Pretty much the most damning thing I've ever seen come out of the uh, whole oil industry debate. Uh, In the 1990s, Bill Clinton signed the Kyoto Protocol, which was, much like the Paris Agreements, uh, a real landmark watershed moment uh, for environmental policy. But when 2000s rolled around and George Bush was elected president, he ultimately uh, withdrew the Americans' uh, acceptance and approval of this bill. And under the Freedom of Information Act, we've been able to see uh, communiques between the president's office and the GCC, which is the Global Climate Coalition, which is a big farce, really, a, a company created by ExxonMobil's uh, and the CEO, ExxonMobil's, the board is all ExxonMobil um, members. And these communications between the two read out, POTUS, President of the United States, rejected Kyoto in part based on input from you, the Global Climate Coalition. And really, there's nothing more damning that I've ever seen. Well, it's a, it's a pretty damning conclusion. You know, last week we, we ended the podcast with complete ambiguity, and this week we're, bending, we're ending about as, as grim as you can get. I just want to temper what Balthazar said with, though even I said for the next 30 to 40 years, oil is here to stay just because of what conditions are looking like on the ground. That doesn't mean things cannot change. Technologies can improve, uh, political situations can change, and economic drivers can also change as well. We've seen OPEC begin to lose some influence because of the rise of U.S. fracking. What isn't there to say that there's going to be some development which makes an alternate energy source or some other provider a lot more alluring or attractive to the average consumer? We can look a little ahead into the short term, but long term, anything can happen. And I don't want to sort of draw that complete doom and gloom perspective that some might want to do. I have to say, Nick, uh, ending on that, a little bit more optimistic conclusion sounds a little bit better for us. And all right, well, that's it for our episode today. I want to thank you, Balthazar and Nick, for coming on. Uh, and, and, you know, we'd love to hear your feedback, too. 
Do you think that the U.S. will continue to rely on oil in the future? And does it really matter that we rely on oil? While you're at it, you can go ahead and follow us on Twitter at underscore Global Inquirer. Like us on Facebook and let us know what you think. We are now on iTunes, so you can check us out there, too. And here, here's a last quick shout-out to the Odyssey, the local Charlottesville band, who you heard here today. And I'll leave you with them. See you next time.